0: Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, thank you, those joining us via live stream. Thank you for being here this morning. Little theologians, that's our code name, by the way, here at Covenant for Children. Little theologians, let me address you first. Welcome, adult theologians, too. But little theologians, draw for me, if you would, please, as you listen to this sermon, a picture of a wheelbarrow. It shouldn't be too hard. And then put those things that are most valuable to you in that wheelbarrow. I mean, even big stuff, like a tree house, whatever, put it in the wheelbarrow. The things that are most valuable, put them in the wheelbarrow. Because in our passage this morning, Peter is going to say that to be a Christian is to be someone who leaves things behind. And I wonder if in this passage, Jesus isn't saying that we're to be the kind of people that dump that wheelbarrow over a cliff. So don't think about that too much. Just fill the wheelbarrow and then listen to the sermon. Our passage this morning is in Mark's Gospel. We're looking at verses 17 through 31. Before we even read the passage, would you join with me in prayer? Our Father, this is your word. It is beautiful. It is majestic. It's pretty but it's true and authoritative. It is our very life, and so we ask that as we spend time in it this morning that you would elevate our hearts by your spirit, that we would see that and believe that. This, this is our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark uh, chapter 10 beginning at verse 16. but many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of our Lord. I do wonder this morning if you'd agree with me that we're living in a moment in time in which we've been asked actually to surrender quite a lot. And During the pandemic, which isn't over, all of us have had to surrender some things that previously were marks of freedom to us. Not long ago, we had to surrender air travel to other countries and other cities that we might see loved ones, that we might go on a vacation. All of us have had to surrender simple pleasures because stores and restaurants, they've, they've been closed. And even now, we've had to surrender convenience and economy because supply chains have been disrupted and some of our favorite products are pretty hard to find. Having to wear a mask has been a bit of a metaphor for this life of surrender, surrendering comfort by strapping something uncomfortable to your face and surrendering efficiency because you had to turn around halfway through the parking lot to go back to your car to remember that infernal thing that you would be strapping to your face. And we've had to say farewell, at least temporarily, to travel, to family, refreshment, pleasure, entertainment, convenience, comfort. There's even a kind of surrender of our bodies. If governments begin to demand vaccinations, chemicals will be put into our bloodstream. Let's not forget that this pandemic has also given us much to argue over, to debate, to tarnish what otherwise might have been harmonious and at least uninterrupted conversations and interactions with others. Have we had to surrender relational peace and harmony? Well, I'm talking about the pandemic as a confining metaphor to our daily life. But just think for a moment about the variety of things that you have had to surrender as a result of the pandemic, as some of us have willingly accepted the various surrenders, gritting our teeth and mustering the best face possible. Some of us, on the other hand, have hunkered down in total resistance, often unable to keep our anger even away from social media. And truth be told, that's really most of us. And most of us are floating back and forth in that broad uh, middle range, and we're uh, touching the edges as well. We've had varying responses, haven't we, to the different kinds of things we've had to surrender as a result of the pandemic. Uh, sometimes we've happily complied and sometimes we've complied. Well, you get the point? Surrender lately, it's been everywhere. But maybe you hadn't thought about this. I'm sure, Christian, you know this, but hadn't thought about it. Did you know that personal surrender, that frustrating experience of not getting what you want, that that's actually very near the center of Christianity? Of course, Christianity is not something that we do, is it? It's something that Jesus Christ has done for us. He has lived the perfectly righteous life that we, in fact, were called to live. And he's taken on himself the eternal punishment for imperfection, the, um, the punishment that we actually deserve, not him. The core of Christianity is Christ's atonement on the cross, his purchase of God's children with his very own blood. But oh so near the center The heart of Christianity is the call of the gospel to surrender everything to Jesus. The gospel calls every man and woman in the entire world to surrender everything about themselves to the ministry of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Believing in the gospel is not bothersome inconvenience of sacrificing comfort to a mask that steams up your glasses, no. Believing in the gospel is far less convenient than that. It's the surrender of everything, of your works, your efforts, your intentions, your plans, your decision making, your understanding, your worldview of your identity, of your, of your everything. The pandemic has been a real inconvenience, but the gospel, well, the gospel, that's a cosmic interruption to the personal kingdom you and I have constructed for ourselves. That's what we have to surrender But when you do this and you surrender to Jesus in the gospel, the life that you live, you actually live through him as a part of his kingdom. In this kind of life, there's no condemnation, there's no fear, there's no bondage, there's no uncertainty about the future, no pressure to define yourself by your work or your bank account, by your tastes or by your looks, or by your sexual desires or by your nationalism. These no longer define you. The life that you live well. You live that life through Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, in the gospel, you no longer belong belong to yourself because you've actually surrendered yourself. But on the other hand, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are more in possession of yourself than you ever imagined possible because yourself is now restored to God's creational purpose. In the gospel, you're restored to his purpose for your flourishing, not just at work or at home, but his purpose for your flourishing that has been swept up into the kind of flourishing that began in God's very own mind and extends into all eternity. That's what you get in the gospel. That's what you get from surrender. You get everything the multitude of surrenders during the pandemic have been inconvenient, have been painful, but the gospel, don't forget, makes an even larger demand upon our lives. The surrender to Jesus actually requires much more, but with the surrender to Jesus and the gospel, you receive so much more. And we want to talk this morning about surrender in this passage because, well, this morning we meet someone who is perhaps one of the most respectable characters in the entire Bible, a rich young man and he is called to surrender everything, and he doesn't. And that's exactly what our passage is about. Our passage says that this kind of surrender is so extraordinary that the only way it can be described as impossible. This passage is not necessarily about financial wealth. This passage is about the kind of heart that refuses to surrender to Jesus. The passage is about surrendering self an almost impossible, indeed impossible task. The surrender that guarantees so much more. Our passage you see opens in verse 17, 17 through 22, with a really respectable guy who just kind of shows up on the scene. He just appears. And then after Jesus speaks to him in verse 23, you you see that Jesus switches, and he's speaking then just to the disciples. I think that's a nice division for this sermon, two-part sermon, nice and easy. First, verses 17 through 22. This very respectable man arrives, and I don't want us to miss this. If you look at verse 17, you'll see that Jesus and the disciples, they're in motion, aren't they? Where are they going? You know where they're going. They're going to Jerusalem where Jesus will be crucified. Jesus is determined to die. He's told his disciples twice very clearly, and they still don't get it. He's going to tell them a third time next week. And on their way to Jerusalem, this man, he just appears and he runs up to Jesus and immediately kneels before him. Unlike others who have done this in the past, this man, he doesn't have a physical deformity, does he? He doesn't have leprosy. He's not bleeding. He's physically fine. If you skip down to verse 22, you read that he's not merely fine. He's a guy with a whole bunch of possessions. And the word for possessions in verse 22 refers to anything that can be bought, and the guy's bought a lot. I mean, the most natural meaning of the word of having great possessions is that he's purchased a bunch of stuff. I want to suggest to you that the ownership of a large number of possessions was not something that was mysterious to everyone who was there. They actually could tell that this guy had lots of loot. In Luke's gospel, he's actually described as extremely, which means opulently rich. Everyone could tell this guy, he's got money. And not only this, we learn from Matthew's gospel that he's also young. He's certainly under the age of 25. He's maybe even in his late, possibly early 20s. And in Luke's gospel, we learn that he is a ruler of some sort, that he's a man of power, of position. He's the kind of guy who's got people. So so is your imagination beginning to fill out this guy who just steals upon the scene? You, You can put all this together and just imagine with me. You're sitting outdoors having a nice lunch on Market Street on a sunny day. And at the beginning of the lunch hour, this young power broker arrives, emerging from the back seat of a shiny Bentley. He's wearing loafers. He's wearing a silk suit. He's wearing a large watch. Youthful skin, full head of hair. And you suspect that every decision he's about to make over lunch, it's a pretty big one you see him? Do you loathe them? Do you covet them? But don't size him up too quickly. Notice in verse 17 that he actually runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him in a silk suit. He kneels before Jesus. No regard to the watching eye. He's got people, but he doesn't care who sees him kneeling before Jesus. This is an unusual form of self-respect. We don't see this in Mark's gospel and he addresses Jesus as a good teacher. He's the only one in the Bible who addresses Jesus as a good teacher. He knows that Jesus by good is uniquely moral or ethical. You might say that he believes Jesus to be the most authentically moral of all teachers. That's what he means by good teacher. And he's not asking Jesus for something as petty as deliverance from sickness or from a demon. He says, good teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is actually a good question. We can be quick to think that this respect for Jesus is entirely insincere, but I'm not sure that the biblical text allows you to do that. The disciples believe that he is sincere. This kneeling, this respectful title of good teacher, this question about eternal life, the disciples, they actually see that as sincerity. If you look at verse 20, this may be hard for you to take, but I'm going to continue with the argument of sincerity even in verse 20. You see this man's self-assessment, which sounds pretty flamboyant. But I believe that there's cues in this text that demand us to take him seriously. Uh, He says that he's the kind of person who has kept the commandments from his youth. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, bear false witness, honor mom and dad. This list is actually spoken by Jesus, and it comes from what has become to be known the second table of the Ten Commandments, the last six of the Ten Commandments, all of which have to do with your love for neighbor. And so this, this wealthy young man, he's not likely making a claim to perfection. Really what he's saying here is that he has kept or guarded these commandments. He's tried very hard. He's strived to keep them. He's ordered his life around them for the sake of his neighbors, and he's done this ever since he was a young boy. Now, we don't know exactly how Jesus feels as he hears this man prate on, but we know what Jesus does. He looks at him in such a way that the audience can sense Jesus' love. I don't know how they can. But they can sense that Jesus, as he looks at the young man, he has this heartfelt affection for him. And this show of affection actually stands out in the Gospels. His heart is bent to this young man for some reason. And perhaps it's because the man's sincerely trying. His motives aren't perfect. But neither is he showboating. Here he is, jumping in the path of Jesus, and he has wealth and he has youth, and he has authority, and he has morals, and everyone knows that this guy, this guy is the whole enchilada, the real deal. Jesus loves him. And I wonder if you're rooting for this guy, but I think that you need to root for this guy before I continue in this sermon. You need to root for this guy. This is not the 'er ne'er-do-well celebrity squandering wealth by filling bathtubs with Dom Perignon. This is not the greasy businessman running a Ponzi scheme. This is a young, wealthy, upright man of authority. His future is bright and he's so unusual that the average Jew, like a disciple of Jesus, the average Jew would say that there is clearly some kind of divine favor on this man. This is why the disciples are staggered by Jesus's position on the matter. Verses 24 and 25, they're amazed at his words, exceedingly astonished. This guy's got God on his side. Who can fault him? Remember what I said this passage is about. It's about surrendering self and receiving so much more. I mean, look at verse 21 at the words of Jesus. Jesus, he actually doesn't deny that the man is virtuous with regards to those commandments about loving neighbor. He doesn't even push the man on his moral qualifications. Instead, he says, you lack one thing. Now, if this man came to you and was boasting like this, would you say, hey, you're so close you lack just one thing? I mean, missing one thing, that's not a bad thing, is it? That's Pretty close. That's what missing one thing means. Pretty close. But the one thing actually prevents this man from receiving eternal life. And If you look at verse 21, you see that Jesus gives this man four commands. He says, go, sell all that you have, give all of it to the poor and follow me. You see that in verse 21? Jesus is really serious. Four things. Go, sell, give, follow. Four commands. We should all be asking ourselves, look, if there's four commands... How come Jesus says you lack one thing? The one thing that is missing is God. This man has turned all of his possessions, whatever they are, he's turned them into God. You could put it this way and not be very far off. This man is boasting about the second table of the Ten Commandments, but it's the first table of the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments. These are the commandments about loving God. These are the ones that he has forgotten. He thinks he's followed the second table, the last six. He's totally ignored the first, cap- first table, the first four, about loving God. Instead of having no other gods before God, instead of not making for himself a likeness of God, instead of not taking the name of the Lord in vain, and instead of finding his rest in God, He worships the things that he has earned with his own hands. The one thing he lacks is worshiping God. He needs to surrender, doesn't he? Why don't you right here this morning take a personal inventory of the things that you own to find out that one thing that you would never go without. Just think, friends, for a moment about the items that would be put immediately into a safe or a safety deposit box personal documents, passport, title of your car, deed of your home, maybe family photos, maybe an heirloom like your great-great-grandmother's rubies or a World War I medal. That stuff surely should go in the safe. But keep thinking, when the wildfire comes encroaching upon your door, what do you run to get first? this gets pretty serious if we begin to admit things like people, family members, Father, mother, brothers, sisters, they're addressed in this passage, you see. And as that fire gets closer and closer, uh, think about uh, all of those things that you want to make sure possessions and people are kept safe. But let's go even further than that. Let's get a little bit philosophical, shall we? What are those things that are most precious to you? Maybe they're your good name, your reputation before others, your status in your career, your freedom from suffering. Maybe maybe it's your sense of happiness, your longing for affirmation, your sanity, your memories. Just pick one or two of these things from this grand inventory that are the most precious. These are the things that I'll save. Your identity, maybe. Your sense of self. Doesn't matter. Pick two, pick three, and surrender them. You lack one thing. Jesus, he actually named it for this man. And the gospel names it for you. In a a personal, secret, deep way, you sense this. That if I become a Christian, I have to give this up because Jesus calls it out in this man's life, but the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and the gospel knows exactly what you're clinging to. Refuse to surrender, and you won't inherit eternal life as a result. And this man is disheartened and sorrowful, and he walks away. But now let's move on. Verse 23, you see what happens. In verse 23, Jesus begins to talk to the disciples personally. This is, this is when we turn away from the rich man's dis- disappointment, and then what do we find? The disappointment of the disciples. It's almost like they're just as disappointed as a man who walked away sorrowful. It's clear in verse 23 that Jesus is, a- is addressing his disciples. And Mark tells us that Jesus looked around and he began to speak to them directly. Peter's actually not going to begin to speak until verse 28. But it's almost as if Jesus can see in Peter's eyes exactly what Peter is thinking and what the other disciples are thinking. From verse 23 to 28, Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their minds. Jesus can see that they believe he has turned away this respectable young rich man without doing him a solid. And the disciples are disturbed by that. Look at verse 26, they say, then who can be saved? And the, the emphasis in that Greek sentence is on the word who. If this rich young man, full of morals, trying so hard, blessed by the mighty, mighty giver of wealth, if he can't be saved, then who can? Um, let me confess something to you. I think this is true for everyone, but I'll lead off with myself. Isn't it true that we think that some people are closer to salvation than others? Christian, you have to admit that you feel like I do. Biblically, it makes no sense at all to think this way, that some people are closer to becoming a Christian than others. It just makes no sense. But we do measure people, and we rank them according to the likeliness of surrender to all, the likeliness that they will profess faith in Jesus. And if I'm perfectly honest, when we admit this, when we catch ourselves doing this very thing, it's actually good for our hearts to call it out. I mean, I can think of people who seem so opposed to Jesus, so very angry with him, that in my mind, they'll never surrender to Jesus. I just feel that. Maybe on their deathbed, but I know people for whom it's hard to imagine even on their deathbed saying yes to Jesus. And then I can also think of people who are actually really close to surrender. I mean, I can almost sense that they're, in their comments and in their increased sensitivity to the things of the Spirit, that their surrender is, wow, it's just around the corner. They're so very close, certainly within my lifetime. But I don't know why I think this way. And I don't know why you think that way. But we do this as Christian people. And it could be just me. I mean, it could be that I have this wiser-than-thou pastor thing going, you know, like when you graduate from seminary and they give you a diploma in one hand and in the other hand they issue to you a handheld spiritual seismograph that detects surrender earlier than anyone else. Great tool. I can use it to tell when someone's about to become a believer. It's very small, very expensive. You can't have mine. Go to seminary but we don't know, do we? We don't know. And instead, we're commanded to preach the gospel. You and I do what the disciples are actually doing here. They've assumed that they know who deserves eternal life and who doesn't. They used to assume that a Pharisee deserved eternal life, but now they're kind of on the fence about that. But they're pretty sure that a Samaritan doesn't deserve eternal life, and they're pretty sure a prostitute doesn't, and they're pretty sure from a couple of passages ago that a child doesn't. But this rich young man, he clearly does. He deserves it. Well, there's probably others that deserve eternal life. I mean, maybe the disciples assume that their mom deserves eternal life. We all think about that, about our moms, perhaps. Poor people who work really hard, aren't too offensive, they probably deserve eternal life. People starving in, in, in countries with really bad governments, uh, they des- deserve eternal life. But shame on the disciples for thinking this way. And shame on you and I for thinking this way. For the disciples, there's actually a tax collector among their number And here in this room this morning is a crowd of wicked sinners, none of whom, none of whom deserve eternal life. In our numbers are former lawbreakers and perverts and thieves and purveyors of all kinds of wickedness. In the words of one cultural critic, we Christians are nothing but a handful of scruffy malcontents. Scruffy malcontents indeed. He doesn't know the half of it. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, boy... If it weren't for Jesus, they'd be a handful of scruffy malcontents destined for hell. But something has happened. This passage demands that we ask this question, who here surrendered themselves to Jesus on their own strength? Not once, but four times Jesus answers this question. He says in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That that word for difficulty is it's scarcely possible. And then he escalates in verse 24. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And here he uses a different word. Painfully hard it will be. And then he keeps going also in verse 24. He further describes this difficulty probably with a clever smirk on his very face when Jesus invents this uh, metaphor, this image of a camel squeezing through the eye of a needle. But just in case they don't get his point, for the fourth time he says it in verse 27. Escalating all things to stare at them in the face in verse 27 and say, "...with man it is impossible." From difficulty to impossibility. None of us have the power to surrender self to Jesus. But Just think about that. Those of you who profess faith in him. You've done nothing to have everything. Don't you remember that? As a sort of final proof for this, I want all of us to see the similarity between one verse and another. Verse 20, verse 28. Look, the rich man says, I have kept all of these commandments. I've done them all, verse 20. And then in verse 28, look what Peter says. Peter says, we have left everything. The rich man has kept, and Peter has left. And in the Greek language, those two words, they sound kind of, kind of uh, similar to each other. And then right in the middle of that keeping and that leaving, right in the middle, is how it is that any person is saved One man's keeping, one man's leaving. One man protects what he has, one man surrenders what he has. And right between is the work of God. Do you see what he does in verse 27? With man it is impossible, but not with God. You know, the surrender that makes up the Christian faith, uh, it's a surrender that, that takes more strength than you actually have. It takes the Holy Spirit work. Becoming a Christian is not like adopting a new philosophy or following a new and better team that always wins. Becoming a Christian is a work of God and the, the Holy Spirit in which he changes that heart. And while you and I, we actually don't have the power to make this change, we do have the responsibility to take notice, to stop, to give up to admit defeat, to lay on your face, to weep, and to cry. This is what the gospel demands of every man and every woman. The proper response to the gospel of Jesus is to say, I believe, help me in my unbelief. The proper response to the gospel of Jesus is to fall upon one's knees and admit, surely this is the Son of God, as a man will do at the cross. The proper response to the gospel of Jesus is to cry out to God, save me even from myself. And doing so, if sincere, is never evidence of your holy doing, your holy working, your holy effort, your holy intentions, but it's God's weighty work on you and in you by his Holy Spirit. Surrendering before him is never evidence of your effort, always evidence of your tears before the working God. The secret of Christianity is that that in becoming a Christian, you get everything, but you contribute nothing because it's impossible for you, but possible with God. I want to finish on two things. There's a lot here, sobering, two things. This passage is about surrendering self and receiving so much more. First, Notice that the life that we live through surrender is a hundred times more than the life that we, that we would live through our own efforts. And take this to heart. Life in the gospel, Jesus says, is a hundred times more than life of the wealthy man. His problem is not that he has too much wealth. Do you fear yourself judging him? It's not that he has too much wealth. It's that he has too little. This rich young man It's not that he needs more and he can get more. It's that he hasn't aimed high enough. He settled for too little. That's what he did wrong. Refusing to surrender, kept working, and he's surrendering, but not surrendering in the right way. Life in the gospel actually makes us much better, much better, than trying to get all of the things that we think we need. Go ahead and fight to the last breath for money, for a career, for status, for freedom, for identity, for pursuit of peace and happiness. Fight, fight, fight. Fight to your very last breath. But the gospel says to you all the time that in that fight you're aiming too low. You're aiming too low. And as Christians, we need to remember that, that what we have in Jesus Christ is far better than anything that we could secure with our own hands, a hundred times better. And we need to have a renewed love for that which we have in the gospel, because the rich young man, he's aiming too low, needs to set his sights higher, and to get there, you surrender. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. If you're not a believer, or if you're unsure if you're a believer, you have to reckon with Jesus. This is the gospel, and the gospel says to you, are you finally, finally, finally ready to surrender for the first time? Do you sense it deep down that you can actually be done? Stop and get everything. Maybe you're sensing that, Maybe you sense through, the, the, through this pandemic that you might be ready to leave everything to get so much more, to set your plans, your dreams, your hopes aside, put them in the wheelbarrow, dump them over the cliff. You might sense that you're finally ready to just give up. If you think so, if not now, visiting with a pastor or an elder here, Would you email the church, call the church, and confess that? I'm thinking I might finally be ready to stop, to give up. Would you share that? Let us tell you more about Jesus. This passage is about surrendering self and in doing so, receiving so much more. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we ask that you would uh, alert Christians more and more to this reality of all that we have and your good gospel and that we deserve none of it. Forgive our arrogance and our boasting. Forgive our looking at others and calling them arrogant and boastful. Forgive us for not seeing and loving and adoring what we have. And for those who are not believers, draw them by your spirit. Crush their hearts. Make them surrender. We thank you for doing this in Jesus' name. Amen.